Uh, hey everyone, yet again, we're back with another episode of Talking Success. Thanks for joining us. I am being joined today by someone who I only recently met. Funny enough, his offices a couple of weeks ago in Cape Town. When I first heard of this company, it was a company that I'd heard of for many years being in the UK. And I was quite surprised, pleasantly surprised when I met with Brett and they said, no, listen, what we were and what we were two completely different things. And we had a really good chat about all things sort of financial inclusion and financial literacy and what the business is doing now. And I thought, listen, I'd love to get him on the podcast. He's got a huge amount of experience here in South Africa, but also overseas as well. And I'm delighted that Brett can join us from Wonga. Listen, great to have you on. Thanks so much. For those of our audience that maybe not have heard of you or not have heard of the business, can you give us a kind of a high level who you are? I know you're sitting there very warm in Cape Town at the moment, whereas I'm freezing here in Joburg. But if you can give us a bit of an overview in terms of who you are, what you do, what the business does, and then we're going to, I've got a load of questions for you. We'll I'll try and get through as many as we possibly can. Yeah. So I've, I would uh, define myself as probably a retailer coming out of the retail industry for most of my career, but certainly working within the credit area of retail through, through a number of local South African companies. And been in the financial services space for the last couple of years now. I did a little bit of a stint in Kenya, particularly setting up a retail credit operation there. And then joined Wonga back in 2015, taking over as CEO as part of a global management change. And I've been here ever since. My, my background and forte really has been in the space of credit and credit analytics but got the pleasure of actually running a business in totality and all the complications that comes with. Yeah, and, and there are quite a few, especially when you're dealing with credit and financial services and South Africa yeah. and the regulators. And you're probably well, going to be mixing both. You say that. You, you say that, but I think that certainly my, my, my experience in setting up a credit operation in Kenya was that I, I didn't actually appreciate how sophisticated the South African market was. And I came back to South Africa to take over the job at Wonga. And I was like, oh, this is a walk in the park. You've got absolutely everything that you need to run a good business from good credit bureau data, both positive and negative data. You can assess the risk yeah. of a client's. And then you've got your, on your backend collections, you've got very sophisticated banking infrastructure that allows you to do payments into customers' accounts and collections from their accounts. So I think as much as South Africa may have its economic challenges, I think that the, the infrastructure here that we have in play is world-class. So I certainly, I, I don't find it to be a challenging market to operate in from that respect. Great. I think before we go on, for those people that may be tuning in from the UK and go, Wonga, Really? Are they still around? Can you tell us a story? Because uh, there, there will be some people, because I know that was my initial feeling was, hang on a minute, I'm sure something happened in the UK with this business. Uh, talk so us through it, what happened? Certainly the, the people from the UK would, who have any origins in the UK or follow international news, have a lot more visibility on, on the UK brand than it is in South Africa. So let's just talk about the Wonga Group as it was back then. That had uh, started off in, in around 2005 to 2007, they actually started operations in the UK. That business grew pretty quickly and certainly the business was looking to do an IPO and there was a lot of focus on growth in that business at that stage. And the nature of the company was that it was probably one of the first FinTech businesses to be created globally in the way in which they approached credit provision. 
But from what I understand, they didn't have many, if any, credit professionals in the business. It was mostly people coming out of the gaming industry who were doing a lot of the decision science behind the, the, the process. And so they were definitely optimizing for profitability. And I think that's part of what, what caused them to go down a number of routes that in today's time, you'd look back and say, sure, that, that was maybe a poor decision. I, I do have a lot of respect for the people who, you know, with the origins of creating Wonga and the idea behind it. I think there was a lot of good, you, we can't tarnish it all and say it was all bad. I think there was a lot of innovation and, and amazing groundbreaking work that was created back then. There was a couple of decisions done in the UK that were really questionable. South Africa is very different though. South Africa started in 2012, operations in 2012 here. And the fundamental difference as a separately registered business in South Africa was operating under South Africans National Credit Act. And so was doing things differently. Wonga in South Africa has always conformed to local legislation. So there's never been a question mark around some of the things that happened in the UK were they done here. It just didn't happen that way and couldn't happen that way because of a relatively prescriptive legislation. Fast forward a, a couple of years and there were some regulatory changes that took place in, in the UK, particularly around 2014, 2015, when they introduced some new, some first bit of regulation that came in for high cost short-term lending in the UK, probably exclusively complements of Wonga create help to motivate for that legislation. But with that, the Wonka group and shareholders decided to bring in a new management team and a new leadership team into the business. And it was at that time, Andy Haste was brought in as the chairman in 2014. And with them, he brought in a new team to turn the business around. And it was really at that time that the first real credit executives came into the business who had experience in credit and understanding that it wasn't just about trying to get to profitability, but it's around customer outcomes, treating customers fairly. It's about how you run a business in a very sustainable fashion. And, and then I joined Wonga in April, 2015 to come and run the South African business. And it was the business as a business had taken a huge hit in brand reputation, probably a lot more visible in the UK because of the there was a lot of things happening in the UK around the Wonga brand. In South Africa, we were very much sheltered from the impact, but people in the business community and regulators certainly were very aware of what was happening. And it's your audience, you're reading international media, who would be seeing what's going on internationally and would be quite aware of what was happening. But from our consumer's perspective, there was very little awareness of what was going on in the UK. But nonetheless, we came in and because of the issues that were going on in, in the UK, our regulators were hyper aware of Wonga South Africa and their assumption, but understandably, was that this company must be operating in a similar way. And so there was quite a lot of scrutiny on the South African business. So yeah. my first day on the job, I walked in just a few minutes after eight in the morning and literally introducing myself to the receptionist and, this, and saying hi. And she goes, oh, you're the new CX. There's people waiting for you in the boardroom. And I was like, oh, really? Who's that? She goes, oh, no, there's inspectors here from the National Credit Regulator. Okay. Uh, my, my first thing was like, oh, I wonder why they're here. And that was my introduction to Wonga. And it's been, it's been a challenge ever since. I have to be honest. I, I think uh, from day one, it was an, not, a, not an easy trip to, to follow. There's certainly a real focus on the South African business and, and how we were um, operating. There was a very clear uh, mandate to try and cancel Wonga's license uh, in South Africa. 
there was new credit legislation that had been published and, and was being promulgated in September of that year. And I think within my first week, we had to make some very hard decisions very fast. And so we decided to go in with the new regulations as they had been outlined and what we knew was going to be coming in in the next few months. And we put those changes in live in the first week of May. It was all hands on deck to do that. And the, the consequence of that is that we saw two thirds of our revenue fall away in the first month. So. I think my nickname was the Profit Slayer, and that was my introduction to the business. Obviously, I think everyone in the UK and in the group were swallowing hard going, what just happened? And I had the very old question saying, do we have a business in South Africa? Is there any point in continuing with the journey there? And it was quite a stressful, yeah, I wasn't anticipating this level of change so quickly. But it was, I think the real blessing was that the team in the UK had their hands full. They were trying to deal with regulatory changes, new regulation coming in. In South Africa, we had a change in existing regulations with a number of new things, I mean, particularly around affordability assessments, et cetera, that came into effect in 2015 and how they were to be conducted. Very strict uh, process around how affordability was to be calculated. And that was like a, a particular change that we went live with. And so the UK team just gave me the, the mandate to say, do we have a, a business? Because we've gone from a profitable business to loss making in, in, in my first month. And I just said, look, give me six months to figure this out. And we got stuck into re-looking at the whole South African business and saying, what's the point? Are we just going to be another money micro lender, money lender that's making profit? Or are we going to do something that's worth doing? And we jumped in immediately. Two probably key things we did. One is we got some very detailed research going into the market, quite a substantial piece of research we did with Ipsos into the market and really trying to, which is a combination of research practices, but the one that really I got a lot out of was the focus groups and really just listening to lots of customers. And we did that across the country, really understanding why are people using our products? What's the, the problem we're solving? And then the second thing we did internally is we started working on a purpose statement around what is the point of our business in South Africa? What's the problem we're trying to solve? And the two kind of fed into each other in, in that process. But at the end of that six months, we actually came back to the, to, to, the Wong, to the group parent company and we said, okay, yes, we definitely have a purpose. There's an absolute need in the country for people who have a, a cash flow shortfall. They're trying mm -hmm. to solve a cash flow gap that they're dealing with. And they don't want to get stuck into a long-term debt trap. And certainly what we've seen since then is a lot of people get, what's that curse? But a customer's looking for 5,000 Rand and they're getting offered 50,000 Rand. It's very tempting for somebody to look at that and go, what could I do with 50,000 Rand? I could take my family on holiday. I could do things. It is very tempting when you're being offered a lot of cash and people get caught in this debt trap as I see it, because the term of the loan is so long. And certainly what we've seen in recent years is that the term back in the 2015 period, your max terms were around 24, maybe 36 months. You look at it today and, and very easily people are getting offered 100, 150,000 Rand over 72, 84 months. And you think that's a long time to be repaying a, a bit of debt. And like life happens. I think that's the reality is that life happens. And 
even the best of people, myself included, you, you have all the best plans and things in place and then something unexpected happens and you have a cash flow shortfall. And so people are looking for safe ways to bridge that cash flow shortfall. So that was really the kind of the genesis, I'd say to you, of kind of the new South African operation that we wanted to create. And with that, we said to them, okay, you guys are this like amazing fintech. We have a great uh, technology of what they put their, put their cap on that cook. And we said, no, the, the technology is terrible. We have to replace it. And I think the, thankfully, the original team that had might have been gone into building the technology went there. And so people weren't sensitive about it. They were like, okay, whatever you need to do. And so we came to them saying, we need to build a new business. This is the, the problem we're going to solve here. We're going to, we need, we can't just do the, the traditional 30-day payday loan. It's actually part of the, the problem here is that you're getting people caught in a reborrowing cycle that they have to relend because you've just taken too much money out of their income. And so we, we said we need to be able to give them term-based loan that can allow them to not become dependent on the product. And the third thing is we need to build a new, a new platform in order to facilitate this new longer-term lending product. So that's what... Before we go into that, because I, I want to dive into that in, in some more detail, there, there's just so many questions I've got based on your, your opening few things. But one thing in particular, I, I read an article just a couple of days ago uh, about FTX, obviously the, the crypto company that sort of went under. And I think one of the statements from the CEO was, yeah, one of our, one of our issues is we, we didn't have a risk team. You read it and you went, you didn't have a risk team. There's oversights and there's oversight. For a, a, a crypto company like that not to have a risk team, I'm wondering why billions and billions of dollars disappeared, just made me shiver, quite frankly. So I think the lesson there is, coming from the UK business, is you have to have the right people in place and the right teams in place and the right structure in place to comply with regulations. It's all very well and good just having a sort of the regulations listed down, but you, you need to have the knowledge and the experience to be able to comply with those. So that was the one thing. The second thing I just wanted to ask you a little bit more about, Wonga in the UK, Correct, please correct me if I'm wrong here and if I'm uh, a million miles away, but it was a payday loan company. And that was 100%. kind of what Wonga was. Is, is, is that correct? 100%. No, it was. I think Wonga pioneered the payday loan industry. It was a completely yeah. new industry that had, that had yeah. been born out of probably very informal based lending of people having a loan from somebody knocking at their door and you hear of the loan shark type behavior that takes place. And in the UK, it's emerged again. Loan sharking is becoming a big problem in the UK again. I think, yeah, Wongas definitely came from those origins, but we've, in South Africa, we've very specifically are moving or have moved away from payday lending into short-term lending. If you look at our, our profile, we do 75% of our business is in storm-based loans. There are some people who do genuinely need money just for a short period of time. And so you're fulfilling a need, but it's not the business. I think very categorically, we were far more focused on a customer outcome-based approach and people being able to repay their loan and it being affordable for them. That's all quite common in the process. You've just touched on that. So let's talk sort of um, customer profile, demographics here in South Africa in terms of what you've seen. You obviously did a lot of research with your focus groups and what have you. What what would you say most people are using these short-term loans for? Is there certain categories? Are you seeing this actually towards the end of the month for people going, listen, I'm a bit short, I, I do need to top up and then I'll repay that when, when my salary hits? Or are there sort of other patterns that you've seen over the last few years? So 
Let me, let's just maybe start with who the profile is, because I think everyone thinks and assumes, and I did as well, by the way, before I'd really got stuck into the business, I thought it was a low end of the market. Who uses absolutely not. So our average income of our consumer is around 22,000 Rand, which is well within the sort of middle class of South Africa. And the average loan size they're using is around 3,200 Rand. So as a okay. percentage of their salary, maybe 10, 15% of their salary that they're using and people on average are repaying the loan off over three months. So it's an affordable a thousand rand a month that they are repaying. So you can see the sort of monthly repayment to income ratio where it's falling there. And on average, people use our product twice a year. So there's very definitely, we're working hard to, we have worked hard and I think we've been relatively successful in moving away from what was predominantly people using the product every single month. I think they were using, taking on average 10, eight, eight to 10 loans a, a year and getting into a cycle. And yes, it's great from a, a revenue perspective, but it's terrible from a, a customer outcomes perspective. We've shifted away from that. Um, sorry, I just want to get back to your question. You were asking us what about, let's just get back to your question again. I think I, I asked about the, the sort of the types of individuals. Yeah, sorry. So I just had a blank on that. To say what people are using the product for specifically, uh, we, we don't have that data. We don't capture it. And I think any capture company and certainly my experience has been, if you try to capture the information that you're asking customer, what are you using this for? They'll tell you what they think you want to hear. So everyone will say, oh, I'm using it for education or I'm using it for a home. We, we've proven in focus uh, research before, that's absolute nonsense. The reality is that people are using it for some form of expenditure and it's traditionally consumption-based expenditure. And um, what I mean by that is I'm either having to pay for some kind of emergency shortfall or I'm having to go and pay for just some kind of thing where I have to go and spend money on a goods or service that I need to get yeah. in order to make it through to the end of the month. We have done a number of very dedicated filming of going to customers' homes and actually we sent film crews out to go and interview customers and say, what have you used to tell us your story? And we've got some amazing content from there. But the use of the, the loads have been from my, my flatmate left and I had a shortfall in my rent to my daughter starting university and she's got a first, first week, the sort of the prep week when they go and get their books and everything. And the bursary is only starting to pay out thereafter. I'm so, but I need to pay for her to go and to, to uni, to my mom's having a party. And I'm, I know I've got the, the incentive. I want an incentive at work. I know the money's coming, but it's only being paid at the end of the month, but her, her birthday's now. And so I want to throw the body for her. Those are the kinds of examples that we've got out. So when you look at it, you know, what people use money for, it's the same thing that you may use money for. It's just, it's a wide range of things that you're wanting to be able to facilitate. And it's just so diverse by person. But Brett, what, what have you seen in the last 12 months, given cost of living has exponentially risen as there's issues with the economy here in South Africa, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We don't need to harp on about that. But have you seen your amount of customers grow? Let me ask a couple of questions. Your existing company customers either take a higher volume of loans or a higher value of loans. And have you seen any sort of negative impact on sort of default rates has any of those happened any of those things happened over the last 12 months or so okay so 
probably a couple of things there to go through. One is if I go back to COVID as a really good example, through COVID, we saw demand in credit globally drop because people were sitting at home and their, the level of consumption spending happening in uh, globally dropped. And so the people didn't need to borrow money and they weren't borrowing money. And, and so it was quite interesting to see that trend take place. But it also points to a level of people are using credit when they need to and when they don't. So it's not like there's this insatiable appetite of people using credit for reckless spending, which is sometimes the idea. But through COVID, we saw that our collection rates, which are typically are above 90%, they remained absolutely flat throughout COVID. And that's a very unusual statement to make when you saw very publicly a lot of uh, credit providers were seeing their performance of their portfolios drop drastically. And it was such a black swan event that we really had to spend time to try and understand you know, why were we seeing this? So one, okay, we understood where, why the demand dropped and we were seeing it globally and we could track on Google Analytics around the world what was going on. But from a credit behavior point of view, what we actually really came to appreciate more, more precisely is that when we grant a loan to a customer, his repayment term is very short. And on every single loan that customer takes with us, we're doing a full bureau assessment. We're doing a full affordability assessment. We're validating his income. And so every single loan, there's this process that we're going through that is for the next three months, we're ensuring you can afford to repay this. And for customers who are in distress or had lost their jobs, we were just declining them and saying, look, we can't give you a loan at this point in time because there is either bureau distress we're picking up or there's affordability distress. And so you just don't let. And so the result of that is that we saw very stable collections, collection rates above 90% throughout the COVID period, which is astounding. So if you look at our collection performance over the last five years, it looks like a dead man's pulse. It's just, it's completely flat. And it's the way in which we manage our business. We prioritize our collection rate over everything else. If you, so coming now to this year, and I think it's just an important context is that when you look at our business, two things, one is are we seeing a big spike in demand for credit? The answer is no. I don't believe, and certainly we're not seeing that all of a sudden people are going and saying, oh my goodness, the economy is under pressure and suddenly I'm going to go and lend a whole bunch more. The, the reality is that most consumers are quite sensitive to how much they lend and they would be saying, look, the interest rates are up. I'm, I'm going to spend less. I'm going to save a little bit more. I'm going to be cautious with how much credit I'm taking. So we're not seeing like this massive run on demand for credit. And then the second part of the question is, what has our performance looked like? The reality is that we, you know, have we seen some distress in the market? Yes, we have. We have seen people with some worse affordability, which is very closely linked to the increase in interest rates. So as interest rates have gone up, bureau repayments, credit installments have gone up. And as a result of that, we are funding this as a result of that consumption of their disposable income. But so, yes, we are not lending as much as what we may have in, an, in a different market cycle, but our performance is remaining very consistent. And that's the kind of the part of the heart of our business is a very predictable collection rate and then managing volumes in, in that cycle. But in terms of growing the business, the, the demand side is we're not seeing big changes in demand, but are we growing the business? Absolutely. And that's a, a different part of the story. Uh I, I, 
I, I was dabbling with it to ask this question or not, but I'm going to. There is another side of fintech, which I, I kind of refer to as the dark side of fintech. It doesn't happen here in South Africa. It doesn't happen certainly on the fintech side here in South Africa, given the regulations. But in other countries, certainly countries you've operated in before, there is this kind of dark side of fintech where loan sharks have effectively gone online and they use extremely aggressive tactics in order to go and uh, recover their debt. Do, do, do you have a view on that? Uh, imagine what your view is but do you that that's pretty much been outlawed now in most countries there are still a few countries that regulation hasn't kept up with that sort of side of of loans and loan sharks do you feel that this is more about financial literacy and education about going to communities in the lower LSM and I know you know where your market sits but if we look at the lower LSM um, and talking about the different alternatives of uh, loans and credit um, is that a big factor in really unlocking the value chain and eradicating this kind of dark side of fintech so let me deal with those two things separately so that the, the dark side of fintech I think Again, my experience in Kenya, my experience in working in an international group like Wonga, and we had operations in the UK, Poland, Spain, Canada, and South Africa. I had a very lovely view across multiple territories like that. South Africa was, the, at, in, in 2015, South Africa was the only country with credit reg regulations. And so let's just realize that South Africa is far ahead of the curve. And I actually think that regulation is a fantastic thing because it gives you certainty. Uh, there's certainly parts of regulation that we can sit and debate. Is everything in the regulation right or wrong? That's just a, a content discussion. But the fact that we have regulations does create a set of boundaries by which we all play. Now, do you have bad actors out there who don't play within the regulations? Absolutely, even when there are regulations. But in the absence of regulations, I think is where you have a real risk. So for businesses that are operating in an unregulated market and are, I don't know, what I would term as being legitimate businesses, really building a proper business and a proper brand and not intending to break any laws, they're literally trying to operate. The absence of regulations is a huge uncertainty for a business and something that you really got to always be worried about and managing because what happens when regulations come in? And so I've taken Wonga in South Africa through a point where there was regulations, but then there was changes to the regulations and it had a massive impact. And I, I witnessed my colleagues in the UK taking a business that was in a, an environment that had no regulations and then new regulation was introduced and they took a massive hit in the business. So typically playing in a space where there is regulation, in, in my view, is a blessing because it's at least like I've got a, a sense of what the lay of the land is. And, and yes, maybe change has happened, but at least you've got some level of certainty that you're dealing with. So I think I'm certainly not an anti-regulation kind of person, but I think that regulations, appropriate regulations is maybe the word to use there, are fantastic. Getting to the point though, around consumer education and, and, and consumer literacy, I think there, there is... I don't think people are as uneducated and as, as, as silly as we think they are. If I think about South Africa, the context of South Africa, the, we have a two-tier market in South Africa. We have formally regu regulated institutions that operate, and then we have 
what I anecdotally refer to as your community-based lending in our informal settlements called machinises. And they fulfill a role. Let's make no mistake about it. They fulfill a role. They're not regulated and they operate in a fairly simplistic way. People come to them. I need 500 rand. They have a very basic interest rate of typically 50%. You repay 750 at the end of the month and that's how it works. And it's simple, but it works. And it's probably the purest example of a self-regulating ecosystem. And there's a whole bunch of complexity around that ecosystem from how do they manage disputes to willing lender, willing buyer, to understanding that the machinista is not this person that everyone paints out to be this terrible loan shark. They're just a person, a guy who's got 10,000 Rand and that's his income. He's lending 10,000 Rand out every month and he makes 5,000 Rand from that. And that's what he lives on. And so you get the context behind what's happening and you realize that there is this ecosystem that's happening. Now, the people that use the machinists, are they uneducated? I would say to you, like, they, they may not have the level of financial sophistication that some people have, but they know exactly what's going on and it's working. It's a working ecosystem that they've got going on there. But now you want, we talk about uh, consumer literacy and improving consumer literacy. Without a doubt, there is certainly low levels of consumer literacy, but I think that there's also highly sophisticated, when you talk about the dark side of the fintech sector, and you spoke about these guys going online and using very aggressive tactics, there are some very sophisticated bad actors out there. And that happens if you consider in South Africa, you look at things like phishing scams that take place. There are some that are really well perpetrated, that are very hard to detect. And, and I would consider myself relatively sophisticated user. And some I struggle to pick up. And you get an email in or you get an SMS in. I'm just paranoid at the moment. I've just learned to become paranoid. But you look at these things and you go, if I was Joe Average, I, I could easily fall for that. And so is it, so I'm just saying, you've got two components here. And people do get duped. You do get sort of the, some of the actors out there who are, are perpetrating some kind of fraud. You do get some people yeah. who don't uh, play very well. Uh, you do get consumers who get misled into things. I'm not here to point fingers at, at any lenders, but I do question, why would you lend somebody 150,000 Rand over 84 months? Is that a bad act? Like, who am I to judge? Maybe for the consumer, what they're spending is actually they're buying a car, maybe, and maybe it works for them. It's down to their particular circumstance. But I think, yeah, yeah. so I, I know I've gone a little bit around the garden here. One of the things that came through from our meeting, funny enough, was we, we were talking exactly around this. And I said to you that there was someone else that I'd met and they'd gone into their call center here in South Africa and they'd asked everyone, what's 10% of a thousand rand? And they were quite shocked at the amount of people that didn't know how to work that out and didn't know the answer. Okay. And then when we, when I think I was relaying that to, to you and Jody, you said, oh, no, we don't talk in percentages. We talk in numbers, right? So if you borrow a hundred, it's going to cost you 125 or whatever the numbers may be. Do, do you feel things like that and those types of ways of communicating are, are clearer to a consumer? Again, we're not saying that 
consumers are completely financially illiterate at all. But when you do start talking about APRs and you yeah, APRs and you do start talking about percentages and base rates and what the interest rates are doing with the central bank, and it does get confusing for anyone, quite frankly, unless you're a professional. Do you feel that one of the strategies that really has helped you and Wonga out is being that sort of transparent, you borrow, this is what you're going to pay back. Has, has that been one of the keys to your success? hundred percent. Look, by, by law now, you have to be very transparent with what you are charging a person, what the total cost of credit is, what their installment is. We're following the law and the prescribed law around how that is. But Gwanga did that before the law came into place around doing that. So we've always been very open and upfront about this is your repayment. And that, that was like probably one of the, the pioneering things that Gwanga did in the day was to say, no, no nonsense. Here's the number that you're repaying and people can see it and say, can I afford that? Is that, am I comfortable with that? The problem you raised about the 10% story is not a financial literacy question. It's an education issue. So that's a broader social issue that we have in the country, but certainly for somebody to be able to look at a number and say, does that make sense to me? hundred percent. And we've, Wonka's always done that. We do, we are required by law to display this is the annual interest rate that you're repaying. But I don't think many people really understand and, and care, quite frankly. When in, in our research, actually, when we did the research around machinistas and we were trying to get to understand from consumers, why did they use a machinista? One of the reasons that came out of there was that people feel, don't understand the, the construct of the fees that we charge and see some of it as being hidden fees. So your interest rate right. is, so if we talk about our interest rate, we charge on average 3% for repeat lenders in a year. We charge 3% interest rate on the vast majority of our loans, but people don't understand the interest rate. They, and then they see, oh, there's a service fee. Oh, what's that for? And there's initiation fee. What's that for? And so that creates distrust in the process. Whereas they're going to the machinista yeah. and you're saying, but the machinista is charging you 50%. And they go, yeah. That's fine. It's 250 Rand I'm paying, but I really need the money right now. And it's, it, it works because they understand it and there's no ambiguity around it. So yes, I, I definitely think that a, a simplified approach to charging interest or, or charging for credit would be probably very beneficial to, to people. And you guys have gone as far as creating an online content library for people to educate themselves on credit and loans and broader financial services. And I know it's not something you've massively pushed, but I was amazed when you told me how many visitors you get to that page at a month. It was 12,000 a month, I think you said. That's right. It's mind-blowing. Anyone out there would love to get 12,000 hits on their website every month, but I will share the link. But can you just briefly talk us where that sure. came from? Was that sort of an initiative that was there before you joined or was it oh, something no, that no. sort of came later? Or? Yeah, so we launched a Money Academy a few years ago. Because as much as I say that there are, I don't think we're dealing with a massive education issue with people's not understanding what they're using. I do think that there is a level of education that people are looking for around, we've got our four pillars there around budgeting, lending, saving, and investing. And just people are looking for information to try and understand it a bit better. In yeah. terms of taking credit, what I'm, what my, my point that I was trying to make is that I think people do understand I am taking credit. I am repaying so much money. I think that our legislation provides that information. But then there's other concepts that they maybe deal with. It's like, how do I go about starting creating a budget? Or how do I, what are the, the pitfalls of debt that I need to be thinking about? 
why should I save? And what we did there is just, again, being in the industry for so many years, I've seen so many education campaigns that produce these wads of information, like pages and pages of information that people are saying, oh, but it's all there. And it's, but look at the reality. Like I hate reading tons of information. My, you know, in today's age with the cell phone addiction, and everything else, my attention span is pretty short these days. And I need to get to the point of what it is. Otherwise you lose my attention. And so our approach to it was to create these 90 second video clips that are hyper-focused on a specific point. And so we give people like, this is the learning objective. There's this really fun video clip that I can watch for 90 seconds. And then at the end, if you want, you can go and fill in a little questionnaire, answer three quick questions on it and test your understanding of it. So we're trying to deliver education in a different way. And yeah. I, I think that there's very definitely a market that, that are looking for that kind of content and looking for something that's, and when I say accessible, A, it's free for anybody can go and, and, and uh, see it, but it's also the way the content is delivered, I think is more accessible. The, I think trying to do written communication is, it's hard. People just don't want to read it. They'll read the first paragraph and they drop off. So our, the way in which we're going about it, I think is a little bit different. We do have the videos, I think, available on YouTube. People can use them. We've seen people in Australia, teachers, like in, in class things, using our video clips in their stuff. We're like, yes, yes, we're so happy because it's got broad appeal. So I think that's a success. And yes, we launched it. We, we haven't been focused on it over the last couple of years since we've been rebuilding the business. But the idea is very differently that we want to start building on that and building the relevance around it because we do think there's a need. And in particular, I guess just swinging back to where's the opportunity. I think if we can get some of the regulatory components figured out, because there's some regulatory hurdles that are preventing us from getting into more of the low end of the markets. And I think if we look at the need of who is in, included in the or has financial inclusion into the formal credit markets. In, in my estimate, it's, it's anywhere between 40 and 50% of the South African adult population don't have access into the formal financial market. And we would love to be able to play more meaningfully in that space. And I think then a, a portal like this becomes a lot more relevant in helping people bridge, being able to give people content that they can view, learn a little bit more. We can track their performance, see how it relates to their credit performance and help people actually access the formal credit market. Because one of the hardest things to do is get a credit record. And I remember my days as a kid coming out of school and friends and family saying, go open an acres account, take a small, get a small account. We had three, 400 grand, go buy yourself a shirt, pay it off credit record because it's the starting point. So from yeah. all of your other relationships that you want to build up over time and all the other, you know, steps that you want to be making in, in your journey through life starts off with your first credit record. And I think that we have an opportunity to really solve that problem. And um, we certainly have the product for it. We have the capability for it, but we need to go and address one or two small things there to be able to unlock that. Hopefully with all of the innovation that's happening within the sector. I know you're very passionate about sort of the ecosystem as, as outside of Wonga, but the whole ecosystem with KYC hopefully becoming a little bit easier to navigate, not compromising on security or anything else, but the rise of the digital banks, being able to reach 
consumers in areas that perhaps they haven't been able to reach before, getting them into the formal markets. We talk a lot about in, in South Africa, every conference I'm at, oh, 80% of South Africa's got a bank account. That's great, but 80% of that 80% don't use the bank account properly. It's a post box, right? It's money in and so, money out. How, how do we keep that sort of that, that uh, those funds digital? How do we build up people's credit profiles? If, and as you said, right at the very beginning, if things happen, which they do in life, unplanned things, there is an opportunity to go to Wongo or to go to another company and say, listen, I need to borrow 50 rand, 5,000 rand, 50,000 rand, whatever it may be, because something unexpected has happened, but I've got the credit history that allows me to go and do that, or the credit profile that allows me to do that. Before we say goodbye, two things. First of all, I'm going to link the academy. I'm gonna put the link here and it's in the comments as, as well. What I'm also going to do is put a direct link to your YouTube channel throughout our channel on YouTube as well. So if anyone's watching on YouTube and wants to find out more, if you click on our channel section, you'll go straight to the platform that Brett's been talking about and familiarize yourself there. Please can share it and distribute it as much as you can. It's it's I think as Brett pointed out, it's not for profit. There's no, there's no curative motives there as well at all. It's very much there to, to help educate and to help grow the economy here in South Africa. Brett, thank you. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I wasn't quite sure which, where we were going to go like all of these, uh, cause they're completely unscripted. But, uh, when we met a couple of weeks ago, I thought, well, there's one thing is we, we're not going to be short on, uh, having a conversation. Uh, I think the conversation flows very well and, uh, you're clearly very passionate about the sector. Um, any sort of last words, uh, if people want to talk to you or maybe looking at if we've got other fintechs listening that may want to partner with you guys or may have some ideas to share, where, where, where's the best place to look you up? Probably LinkedIn. My LinkedIn profile's there. So pretty easy to reach out and contact me there. Amazing. Thank you. Thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I can right. wear my other hat for a second and not formally, but informally welcome you to the FinTech Association as well. Great to be working with you closely on that side as well. But, but thank you. Go and enjoy the warm weather in Cape Town. I'm going to go and put the kettle on and have a warm cup of tea before my next podcast. Sure. Cheers. Take care. Cheers.